0: Asked this morning about the front row whether it's appropriate to sit there, and I gave my favorite camp meeting response. There's probably two people in this whole crowd who have ever been to a camp meeting or that style of preaching, but the front row in camp meeting that's getting under the spout where the glory comes out. Translation Spitting distance. (laughs) We have more this morning to do than I will probably get done. I do not like preaching with PowerPoint, okay? I'll teach with it all day, but I don't like to preach with it. But we're covering so much ground, and my outline is a bit complex, So my students will love me for this because they have to take down the outline and take down sermon notes. But if it will help you progress through the passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Please keep your Bibles open. We will read the passage as we progress for sake of time. remind you of the expositor's task. It is threefold. What does the text say? What does the text mean? How does the text apply? If we don't do those three things, we have not unfolded the scriptures. So that's what we're going to try to do today in the hope of the gospel. Now, There is a predominant thought running through these verses, and that is a defensive on the part of the Apostle Paul. He is defending the veracity of his message. Could be, we don't know for sure, there was a significant Jewish population in Thessalonica, but it could be that his enemies from Philippi had actually come across and were also there Creating problems in Thessalonica. We know he was there for an abbreviated period of time and then was forced from the city. There, in the midst of this defense, not only of his message but of himself, there are four references in nine verses to the subject of the gospel. The hope of the gospel, that expression is found in Colossians 1.23. For if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. And I am personally of the persuasion the gospel encompasses a great deal more than the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. To reduce the gospel to that, I think, is to miss a great deal. It actually encompasses the corpus of New Testament theology, in my opinion. Uh, And Paul was a theologian. We get most of our theology from him. And he communicated a great deal of it, uh, even in abbreviated times, such as he had in Thessalonica. The point is this. While the messenger is important in the sense that God is using him as an instrument, the message is infinitely more important. And Paul is attempting to emphasize the message by answering questions or allegations against the messenger. Would you agree with this proposition? The gospel is our hope. And it is the only hope this world has. Looking for solutions elsewhere simply are not working and are not going to work. So, Paul is communicating the gospel. In the first two verses, he alludes to the fact that he communicated the gospel in adversity. And I'm just gonna throw these outlines up if you want them fine, if you don't. Just try to follow the the course of Paul's argument. In verse one, For yourselves, brethren, know our interest in unto you that it was not in vain. Remembered, and these people remembered, that Paul had founded the church. These members were well acquainted with him personally, as well as the circumstances upon which he entered the city. They also knew that his efforts on their behalf were not in vain or literally void of power. The believers in Thessalonica had literally experienced the power of God through the power of the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He said in verse two, but even after we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. Now this epistle was probably written within a relatively few months after Paul was actually expelled from the city of Thessalonica. And that helps us to understand his constant references to the personal knowledge of this body of believers. Uh, They were well acquainted with his history. You have to understand that when Paul and Silas and Timothy entered this city, Paul and Silas walked into that city with completely lacerated backs. They had been beaten savagely in Philippi, they had been thrust into the inner prison and shackled in stocks. Their backs had not healed. I think that most of us, if we were missionaries under those circumstances, would have made a furlough. We would have come home to heal. Even if we still were impelled to go forward. I imagine by the time Paul died in Rome, his body was a mass of scars. Scars for the gospel. These people in Thessalonica would have been keenly aware of that shameful treatment. The language here is kind of interesting. One of the words that's used here is a word from which we get an English word that's probably lost on you. I had to go to the Unabridged Dictionary to find it. Hubris actually comes from one of these words. It has to do with an arrogant spirit. It has to do with an arrogant spirit hateful, mean-spirited attitude because that was what Paul was preaching. This was the intense hatred not only of the preacher but of the message he was preaching. There are two adversitives in Greek, Allah and "day." Allah is the stronger adversative, but, but it's an emphatic but. And if you follow through this passage, you'll find that's the one that Paul uses all the way through. Here are the circumstances, but even though we were shamefully entreated, even though our backs were lacerated, even though the enemies were already converging, we were bold. He said we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much attention we must recognize that the gospel demands bold presentation. And too many of us are anything but bold in our presentation of the gospel. We are measuring the water. We're trying to guess what the response is going to be before we put our foot in the water. Paul didn't do that. He came in preaching. This was not a wild fanaticism. This was a passion to communicate the gospel, even though it brought contention. And that word, we get another English word from that word. We get our English word agony from that word. It speaks of the agony of the cross-country team who... Push till the last. They push beyond their ability. By the time they finish, if they get their very best, they are exhausted. Or the press of some other kind of a game or contest among the Greeks, or a battle, a pitched battle to the last. Paul said that's the way we preached. We ought to be equally bold in the proclamation of the gospel. Now, I'm not a great Greek scholar, but I'm guessing that this is either an objective genitive or a genitive of source, which simply means this wasn't Paul's gospel. He didn't come up with this. This is the gospel out of the source of God. God gave the gospel, God gave the word. And according to Psalm 68, verse 11, we ought to be publishing it boldly. So it was a gospel communicated in adversity. It was a gospel communicated in purity. Now we're getting into the defensive side of this passage. Paul says a lot of things about himself in this passage that any one of which we could camp upon for a while, but we'll not. He begins with the issue of honesty. For our exhortation was not of deceit. Do you understand that one of the age old techniques for discrediting an unpopular message is to discredit the messenger? I am frankly at a point in any given political season, I shut that whole process down for me personally I am not interested in anything hardly anyone has to say during a political season because it's almost never ever about the real issues it has come to the place in America that what we think of politics is smearing the character of those whose message we disagree oh the devil's pretty good at that Because if you can discredit the messenger by accusing him of being a liar, do we hear that these days? Very frankly, on both sides of the spectrum. So much so that the real issues that we ought to be debating and talking about never ever get talked about. Paul said, I didn't preach in deceit nor of uncleanness. There's another technique that has become extremely popular in American politics. And that is to attempt to discredit the message by questioning either the motive and or the lifestyle of the messenger. We have to understand that in these early days, these early missionaries were not the only itinerant voices vying for space in the public square. All of the religions had their preachers. And most of the pagan religions were rife with the grossest forms of immorality in the name of the religion. All kinds of terrible vices were practiced in that debauched pagan culture. And so Paul is facing the same kind of accusations And he's saying, no, it's not of immorality. Uh, We were not unclean, nor in guile. The word guile conveys the idea of deceit for advantage. I'm a guy. I'm not a great athlete, but I am a guy. I don't really, my wife knows this, I don't care about, the romance stuff, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, things that you can watch. What, what is it called? Hallmark, Hallmark. I sometimes will watch it with her just because I love her. But to me, all the themes are the same. Guy gets girl, girl gets guy. It's, it's always the same, and there's always the same plot. I, I, but I do kind of like the old westerns, the shoot them up bang-bangs. Shoot it out at the okay, growl, kind of thing. In early American frontier life, there were always the hawkers or the hucksters selling snake oil. This will cure whatever is wrong with you. Paul said, I didn't preach that way. I did not come to you with guile with the idea of buy my product. Uh, you'll be better for it. Rather, in verse four, as we were but, adversative, as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. In contrast, Paul and his companions had been tested. And the word here carries the concept of testing metal, particularly metal that was being passed for medium of exchange, which was not always in coinage. Tested for its purity, tested for whether or not it is the genuine article. Well, Paul says we've been tested by God. Allowed, approved, validated by God. And because Paul and Silas and Timothy were, in, were approved by God, they were entrusted with the gospel. If I have a mantra in life and ministry, it is four words. Truth is a trust. You really think God gives you the truth just so you can be smart? That God gives you the truth just so you can know things that other people do not know? Or does God allow you the privilege of receiving truth as a repository with the view of giving out what you have been given. Every person in this room, if you've been saved with the grace of God, you have been entrusted with the gospel. If you're saved, you know how to be saved. You may not explain it as well as some other people, but you know and understand it well enough to explain it to anyone who will listen. And that's a trust. A trust entails a responsibility. To be entrusted with the truth is to be burdened with the responsibility of keeping the trust, that is maintaining the purity of the faith, and then the responsibility of communicating the truth to as many people as possible. My years of pastoral ministry, I was forever creating work for myself, because I was constantly trying to figure out another way to communicate the truth to more people, more effectively. Usually had tendency to have my fingers in more pies than I ought, attempting to do more than I ought. But, folks, that's the passion of ministry. I've not spent my life studying the Word of God in order to impress you. I've spent my life studying the Word of God in order to give it to you, in order to impress it upon you. Paul said, That's what motivated my preaching faithfulness to God, faithfulness to the truth. Verse four, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. Genuine passion to proclaim the truth never rises from popular appeal. The truth is seldom palatable to an unbelieving world. The fact of the matter is the truth offends believers. We're fallen creatures. The truth calls us to account. The truth defines and describes us for what we really are. The truth demands that we respond in faith and change and none of us like that. Paul was not trying to impress people. No gospel preacher Needs the approval of any man. He needs the authentication of God. Which, by the way, translates in his life and in his message. And God knows the motive behind the preaching. God trieth our hearts. Verse 5, For neither at any time use we flattering words as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. This reference to flattering words goes back to the issue of pleasing men. We do not preach to the stands. I shall not call names, but I'm thinking of one person in particular, but others like him, who had the uncanny ability to size up a crowd and figure out what would move them. And he was expert at doing it. Even though his own life was an absolute shambles. He probably preached more against sin than almost any man in America in his day to be as guilty as he was. Paul's not doing that. He's not using flattering words. He's not trying to size up the crowd and see what they want to hear. He's not preaching to the stands. He's not on public display in order to receive the accolades of careless people. I got over that a long time ago. As one preacher put it, you stand at the back of the church after Sunday morning and everybody walks out, shakes the preacher's hand and says, in effect, you're the greatest preacher since Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Dwight Lyman, Moody and makes all the list." and they never come back Sunday night. Really? I. And I appreciate the kindness of people, but I learned a long time ago not to listen very much to that. That's not what we're preaching for. That's not what Paul was preaching for. There's no underlying motive. That's why he referred to the cloak of covetousness because many of the itinerants of his day, like the snake oil salesman, were out to line their pockets were out to see what they could get from the crowd. As one commentator well put it, it's worth stopping to reflect that this covetousness almost invariably comes with a cloak. The truth is a genuine and godly motive never needs a cover because God is witness. Then there was communication of the gospel in sympathy. What do we mean by that? Well, I hope we mean what Paul meant. Verse six, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. True servants of God are always humble. Even those with outgoing personalities recognize that their gifts and their opportunities come from God himself. And the ability to seize upon the opportunities and utilize the gifts comes from God himself. No, the message, the emphasis here must ever be upon the message, never upon the messenger Paul truly was an apostle and he might rightly have asserted his credentials, but in this case he does not. On some other occasions he does for reasons of validating the process of inspiration. But in this case, he is not calling attention to the the fact that he is an apostle. He's making no requirements for recognition or monetary support because the glory belongs to God alone. What is our theme verse around here? That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. That's the way Paul's preaching the gospel in Thessalonica. There's also some intentionality here. That's a nice word. I like big words. I like words. We were gentle among you, even as nurse cherished her children again that strong adversative and there seems to be a double metaphor going on right here there is tenderness and kindness which adds to the appeal of the gospel do you understand it's not necessary to be abrasive in order to proclaim the truth paul was strong read his epistles he could be very strong but he was never oppressive. He was not picking a fight. He was not building straw men that he could push over. He was not proving that he was more aggressive than maybe some other preacher. No, he was tender. Besides that, he's dealing with tender land. Understand, folks, the people he's addressing probably have been saved less than a year. These are tender lambs. And then he makes reference to a nurse. Context and grammar seems to indicate we're not talking about the ladies in the nursing program. We are talking about a nursing Mother, we're talking about a mother's love. And that's about as tender and passionate, encompassing, and self-sacrificing as anything on earth, short of the love of God. And Paul said, That's the way I brought the gospel to you. In charity, verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls because you were dear unto us. Motive here is moving in two directions. One is upward, the motive to please and honor God because we love him which is the reason we ought to be doing everything that we are doing. But there's also a motive of compassing love for other people. Paul with his companions loved the Thessalonian believers so much that they were willing to spend and be spent, the term Paul uses in Second Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 15. They were willing to impart their very lives for the sake of, Of the gospel. They gave their message with the best and the utmost of everything that was within them. This, my friends, is witnessing with passion. When I am more concerned about the eternal destiny of a human soul than I am concerned with how I'm going to be received, it'll change the way I present the gospel. When I am more concerned with whether or not people get the truth, understand the truth, are motivated to respond to the truth, if I'm more concerned about that then I'm concerned about whether or not folks think it was a great sermon. That's the passion to preach. One fellow put it this way. When soul goes out to soul, the gospel so offered will be more readily accepted. And then there is communicating the gospel in generosity. This last verse that we would probably have tendency to gloss over, but we ought not. Paul says, for you remember, brethren, our labor and travail in laboring night and day. Like many church planters even today, there was no salary. No means of support beyond self-support. This little band of missionaries provided for their own needs by diligent and hard labor. If you know anything about the labor market, even in these strange days, short-term laborer is the least remunerated of all. It is usually reserved for people who can't get any other job in a short span of time. It's usually the jobs that no one else wants. Paul actually uses some rather graphic terms. He uses the word kapas, which means toil in terms of suffering. Or moctas, which denotes the magnitude of the obstacles that have to be overcome. In other words, they were working hard day and night just to survive food, shelter, clothing. And still found time to evangelize and teach. If I may speak to those of you who are looking toward ministry. We have come full circle in our day in the which our country is literally covered with small churches that cannot afford a full-time pastor. Did you know that didn't matter to Paul? It ought not to matter to us. I've served four churches through the years. I never ask, how much do you pay? Usually found out before I came. By the way, I've never gotten a salary increase by changing churches. It's always gone the other way. That shouldn't matter. Yes, I had a wife. Yes, I had children. Yes, I had responsibilities. But how much it pays isn't at issue here's an opportunity here's a need prayerfully we can discern whether or not there is a call because a need does not constitute a call if there's a call then we'll just do whatever we have to do in order to make it work that's what Paul is doing here he worked night and day and still preached and evangelized without excuse because we would not be chargeable unto any of you it is theorized that the believers in Thessalonica were actually an impoverished group of people Paul would not add to their burdens besides that this church was very young I don't know if you know this but when you're discipling people you don't talk about tithing in the first two weeks of discipleship So their ability to even understand the issue of taking care of God's man probably didn't exist. So these missionaries who would receive no money in exchange for their efforts, that's fine because the gospel is more important. Which leads us to our last phrase. And I chose the word indigenous for a reason. We preached unto you the gospel of God. The word used preached here means to proclaim a message as would a herald. To proclaim loudly and publicly. It is to preach with force. The point is that Paul made the gospel indigenous, native belonging in Thessalonica it didn't belong till he got there but he was intent upon it being there when he left if you compare this to the acts historical narrative part of this you understand paul left sooner than he wanted to and left under circumstances that he would not have chosen and had a difficult time I don't know for sure if he ever got back to Thessalonica but he was dead sure on one thing when I'm no longer here the gospel will be what a legacy how about you is the gospel important to you Is it important enough to get outside yourself and proclaim it honestly and openly and publicly and often by whatever legitimate means that you can come up with? Are you passionate about the fact that people are going to hell? About the fact that unless they have Christ in their hearts, you say, I can't save anybody. No, you can't. You never have. You never will. God can. And he'll use you and me if we'll communicate the message. So it's time for us to stop thinking about ourselves and start thinking about the message and proclaim it boldly because the hope of the gospel is the hope of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this instructive passage. It would be one that would be easy to breeze through and just pass over the extended argument and arrive at the gospel at the end. But Lord, we do need to count the cost. We need to be aware of what we're doing, not only why we're doing it, but how we're doing it. But we need to do it. And I pray we will. In Jesus' name, amen.